Welcome back to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. Today's episode is powered by TD Ameritrade. Every stroke counts on the scorecard and every penny counts in the market. That's why TD Ameritrade is committed to straightforward pricing with no surprises, so you're free to swing with confidence. Visit tdameritrade.com slash fried egg. Member SIPC. Today's episode is with Russ Myers. Russ is the head superintendent at Southern Hills Country Club down in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Russ has had a uh, great career in the superintendent industry working at Augusta National Ocean Reef down in uh, Key Largo, LACC, as well as two stints at Southern Hills. So he's got a lot of great stories from the Masters to the PGA at Southern Hills and then also restoring both LACC and Southern Hills. Before we get to Russ, I'm excited to announce a new Print of the Week program on the Fried Egg. Each week we'll be selling some of my original photography of golf courses. Um, Each month, print sales will benefit a different charity. So check out the Pro Shop on the Fried Egg today for the very first print of the week, which features a shot of Sand Valley's second hole. 20% of these proceeds will go to the Daniel Murphy Scholarship Fund, an organization that gives high school scholarships and educational support to kids who need it. Now, on to Russ Myers. I miss a green, for example. I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. What's what's your favorite fruit? <laughs> I don't know if I have one. Banana. Is that a fruit? Yeah, it's All a fruit. Right. I have a banana <laughs> aficionado too. I mean, it's the one that you could eat every day. I think. Yeah, yeah I think that's it. It's kind of it's drier. Mm-hmm. Where'd you grow up? Finger Lakes region, of New York, in a town called Odessa, New York. Odessa, New York, mm-hmm. not to be confused with Odessa, Texas. Not even close. <laughs> Flashing yellow light. Yeah. Um, so how'd you, how'd you get into turf? Like what was the, and, you know, what made you become a superintendent? Uh, it was probably like most people. I like to be at the golf course and I like the atmosphere of the golf course and the people that hung around it. I didn't even know there was an industry for turf. Uh, I was working at a nine-hole public course in Watkins Glen, New York, called Watkins Glen Golf Club, and I kind of showed up when I wanted, mowed tees, mowed fairways, whatever. Went in at night and ran irrigation on greens by throwing roller bases out and filling the pump with a tank of gas. And one summer, the club champ at the time, we were sitting in the clubhouse having a beer, and he said, how come you don't go to Cobleskill? And I said, why the hell would I want to go to Cobleskill? And he said, because they got a career for, they got a degree for what you do. I said, what do I do? And he said, golf course maintenance. I had no idea it existed. And so I explored it and got into it and it kind of picked up from there. You played a lot of sports growing up too. And how did, how did you get into golf? Like My father, um, Joey Sindelar, was 
was a uh, from Horseheads, New York, which was my dad's hometown, and and my dad was a three sport coach and athletic director, and you know he followed everybody locally, whether it was you know Kurt Mangwaring who played for the Giants in baseball, or Joey, or Mike Halbert, guys like that. So my dad would truck me all around the country. To we were at Joey's win in Greensboro back then, and and uh, obviously at the BC Open. So it was things like that that got me introduced to the game of golf and got me going. Your one of your early jobs was Augusta, um, working at Augusta National out of college, and then you've obviously been involved with major championships here at Southern Hills, and but then you've also been a part of a lot of major championships set up staff. How many total major championships? Wow, it'd take me a while to add them up. But I would say it's comfortably north of 40, probably. Well, that's not true. So, uh, total tournaments would be north of 40. They weren't all majors. Um, you know, I spent probably four or five straight years going to Mirrorfield for the Memorial and uh, been in a lot of different tournaments over the years, whether it was a Walker Cup or something like that. What uh, what are some of the most memorable ones from your standpoint? Just in memorable moments, I guess. Yeah, there's a lot of them. I mean, obviously the ones I was closely involved in with Augusta and being there, you know, when Ben won and, and Tigers win there in 97 and and some of the experiences with that. I was at Shinnecock, um, was it 04, I think? And uh, that was obviously became pretty from our standpoint golf course maintenance world became pretty memorable um boy walker cup at uh chicago golf club uh walker cup at sea island at ocean is that i think it was at, at sea island that was a great experience a lot a lot of them over the years and certainly the 07 pga here was was special for me working across a number of different organizations masters obviously uh usga pga uh, RNA, you you went abroad, right? Yeah, I did. I did. I was at Lytham and St. Anne's and Troon for Tom Lehman and Justin Leonard's wins. That's, that's neat. Justin, yeah. I remember that Justin Leonard one. How would you compare and contrast the different organizations and, and the relations with the, the setup and superintendent crew? Yeah, in a more general, it, it's hard to pick at them. At the time I was coming up to them, I was still pretty young in the industry. I wasn't in a lot of the, my exposure to them was, um, you know, I might be running the stint meter each morning and, and checking and, you know, helping the superintendent or deciding for myself how many greens we were going to mow. So, you know, it'd probably be unfair of me to, to try to compare them. I think in, in general, I think they've all evolved, right? I think when I was first doing this and going to U.S. Opens and Walker Cups and working the Masters, it was an experience like no other and and evolution has progressed to where they're trying to drive as much dollar out of these things as they can anymore and it's not quite the personal relationships it used to be when i was coming up and showed up to work an open or a u.s amateur or women's open tim morgan we'd go around each hole and and whether it was tim or mike or or even tom meeks back then or you name it, you know, you're putting to holes and they're talking about it and there's a lot of interrelationship. With that drive to never make a mistake and try to perfect the wheel and maybe to some degree overcome what technology is doing to them and getting courses ready, everything has become more data-driven 
you know, how far are they hitting it and, and, and how fast can the greens really be? And, and to some degree, do we really trust the numbers we're getting? And if we get a whole location out of, out of comfort zone, what was that data and how did it compare? You almost have to be ready to defend everything you do. So I think in general, the organizations have tried to own their own information, separate a hair from from the days of past where they relied a lot on the local knowledge of the superintendents. It doesn't mean they don't rely on it, but but deep down they know they're the ones going to get blamed on TV, so they now bring their own, you know, local regional USGA agronomists to run a stint meter because they need to know that it's their people. Um, you know, those types of things. I think the way they've evolved has been interesting. And, and when so when I try to compare and contrast that, now I won't speak for the RNA. I wouldn't say I had a close enough working relationship with them. But but uh, the PGA, with Kerry Haig basically being the lone face of that, I think he knows what level of risk he's willing to take there and, and tends to tends to do a pretty good job of finding that balance that, that, that makes that a little less necessary and thus keeps guys like myself who want to be a part of the course setup, want to be a part of helping make the right decisions, you know, to ensure the best outcomes. It allows us to be more engaged. I don't know if that clearly answers it. I think, I think the USGA has has advanced beyond that stage a little farther than they were back in the late 90s. Mm-hmm. I think that relationship, certainly, you know, whether that was working with Paul Latchaw at Congressional or John Zimmers at Oakmont, those relationships were always there. And then to some degree, post-2004 Shinnecock, they just were never comfortable doing that fully again. It doesn't mean they don't seek the input. It doesn't mean they don't take the advice, but, but it kind of all of a sudden now we're measuring percent slopes all the time on whole locations and we're checking firmness meters and we're redefining things to make sure the data fits instead of the course setup. Yeah. Well, what was like the, the atmosphere? What do, what do you remember most from the O four open at, Shin- at Shinnecock? Was there something in like the, the maintenance facility? Was there like just a feel or? <laughs> yeah, it's a, it, the story is, who knows where this could end up, but to give you the story from my perspective, I'm a superintendent in Florida, up working at Shinnecock. We have a house that we've rented right off the property. It's got a pool in the backyard. And to, I can still recall Johnny Miller saying best conditioned open he's ever seen at the start of the play that week on Thursday. And I recall Saturday sitting in the break room at the maintenance area and watching the broadcast and David Fay was in the booth at the time and the second to last group of the day on a Saturday that was cool and breezy and windy, the putt on seventh green, right? The Redan is seventh. Yeah. The putt on seven got away from him and went off the green. And I recall hearing David Fay say on there that green was inadvertently rolled that morning. And I said to the guy sitting next to me, I said, that's not going to go well. And he said, what do you mean? And I said, he basically just stated that the golf course maintenance staff made a mistake and and inadvertently rolled the green, which couldn't have been true. And by the way, it was fine for every golfer all day long until the second to last one of the day. Now, what happened beyond that, I don't really know 
all the certainties of it. There was accusations of, of night rolling, which I could probably say 99.5% of the chance that didn't happen because I know people who were supposedly involved in that and they were sitting next to me at a pool drinking a beer that night. Um, but regardless, the fact of the matter is that happened on Saturday night and the statement was made before anything happened on Sunday. And there was plenty of opportunity to fix that issue, but for whatever reason, it, it wasn't done. And I, I remember telling my friend on Saturday night that I wanted to catch an early flight out on Sunday. And this may come across as cowardice, but he said, why is it? I was a young guy at the time. And, and I said, because I'd like to host one of these one of these days. And if this goes bad tomorrow, which I think it's going to, because people were pretty fired up, I don't want to be standing in the backdrop while this is going on. And unfortunately, they're just, I mean, there's a lot of people who could have solved that issue, in my opinion, looking back. And I'm, I've talked about this with people who worked there at the time, and I think they all agree. Nobody's, I mean, it's just what happens when the fingers started getting pointed, and now it's like, well, what do you want to do? I mean, my understanding is Mark Mashad went and said, hey, forget it. It's over. What do you want to do? And and they just didn't come to the right conclusion the next day. Tricky thing. It's How do you think the mentality and the collaboration with superintendents with the USGA has changed since that? Yeah, I think, I think it's still heavily collaborative. I mean, my yeah. experience with working with, I consider Mike Davis a good friend. We've, you know, known each other a long time and he's certainly, you know, I think his, the criticisms he's taken recently to me are in unfair in a lot of ways. Um, you know, I, I hear people, I mean, to answer the question first, I think there's still a lot of collaboration. Mm -hmm. I just think that there's so much double checking over top of that now. And there's a lot of voices and the, there was a lot of voices in the decision. There seems to be a shift here going on recently to try to, you know, have a very clear vision moving forward. So maybe that's changing. I think there was a stretch here where there was a lot of voices inputting things and Mike would take all that information and try to combine it into the best outcome. And I think in general he did the, the problem I've seen, I, I listened to a radio show the week of the open and this guy was talking about, how the USGA has just blown it for so many years. And I was like, what exactly have they blown? I mean, you, you know, depending on how you want to shape your argument, you can. But they went to some new sites that they probably needed to err a little bit on the conservative side, not knowing exactly how they were going to play. They maybe got a bad hole location on Saturday at, at Shinnecock. Maybe they could have had a little more water, whatever. But they're still great championships, and you're going to get a bad hole location. We had bad ones back in the days of Payne Stewart winning opens. Seems like we do okay with it. Um, I, I don't, I think when you look at their intent and what Mike tried to do over the last 15 years, people are going to, people are going to be pretty positive about it in hindsight. Um, you know, I think as far as course setup stuff, I think. Yeah. I mean, I, I think he gets, a, they get such a bad, I, Everybody goes into a U.S. Open for some reason looking to, like, fight with the USGA. Yeah. It's an incredible dichot like a, It's weird because you could the same thing could happen at, at an Open. I remember a few years ago, the wind was blowing so hard. I can't, I can't, I don't think it was Brookdale. It was, uh, I can't remember, but it was where Brooks Kepka was yelling at a rules official. He's like, my ball's moving. I'm not hitting it. Yeah. Like, you know, and like. If that was a USGA event, 
Well, USDA so would just noise. be crucified. Yeah, I mean, there's so much noise, Andy. I mean, I remember when I, I mean, I was working at Augusta National on the crew, and it was always fascinating every year because the players would come in and you'd hear them start talking either to each other or in the media about the changes that were made to certain holes, and you're sitting there going, "I've had about eight days off since the last Masters, and trust me, that didn't happen," you know. But the mind games that just Eat, eat these guys alive sometimes you know i mean they they believe stuff's happening that isn't happening and i think a lot of that happens with especially you know the open it's let's come in guarded right out the gun and and you know unless you're filling you are obviously trying to take a positive approach or something you know what i mean I, watching it over the years has been has been a funny deal for me just because you being there inside the ropes and to some degree hearing some of that over time, you keep going, man, it's amazing. This guy, these guys think we rebuild the 12th green every year at, at Augusta over the years, you know, and it just wasn't happening. And Marsh Benson used to say, you know, you're a young guy and you'd look at the superintendent and say, we're going to speed up the greens for Sunday. And he'd Marsh had this way where he would talk and he'd say, yeah, the nerves will take care of that. We don't need to be doing that. You know, I mean, there, there's so much about the, the mind of the golfer, as you know, from to watch me play, you know. How does one go about getting a job at, on the grounds crew at Augusta National? I feel, I, I mean, do you just apply? Is it just everything about Augusta's like got this own? And I'm just curious. I, I've never looked at a job, a turf job board, and you know. So I've told I've told you a piece of the story, but so I grew up a gym rat, son of a coach. And kind of made a vow that I was going to try something else in my life. I didn't know what it was at the time, but and uh, didn't want to go into coaching. Not because I didn't think I would love it. I just decided to do something else. So, so as I was going through college, the, the basketball coach there got me drug into the program and then asked me to stay on as an assistant coach with him, student assistant, and I did. And as I was finishing my last year of college, I didn't have any eligibility left. He wanted me to be, he wanted me to go do a graduate assistant's job with Raleigh Massimino, who was then coaching at Cleveland State University. And there was another place as well that he had recommended. And so I sent off applications to do graduate assistant work in coaching. And I didn't know if I was going to get them. And in the meantime, I fired off four resumes. I think I fired one to Augusta, one to, um, I think, to Shinnecock, one to, I think, Oak Hill, because it was somewhat local for us. And I don't know where the other might have been Pebble or Pine Valley or something, right? I don't know. But I fired off four resumes, and just I got four, a call back. Four pretty good spots. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was just in case, and I don't, and you know, looking for. I always knew I in my mind I could go back to Watkins Glen Golf Club and work the summer if I needed to. And and I had done my internship for a guy by the name of Jim Hengel, who was who had just left Binghamton Country Club to build a course uh, designed by. Uh, um, Mark Mungem did the most of it, but Cornish, Silva, and Mungem at the time and in uh, Appalachian, New York. And uh, I didn't know this, but this guy knew I had sent those, and he reached out to Marsh at Augusta and just said, hey, I know you're inter- you asked this guy to come for an interview. You really should look at him. And so I went down for the interview, and to this day, it's probably still the hardest interview I've ever had as far as the stuff I had to do and fill out and stuff and, and questions like, what's your favorite fruit on there kind of would throw me out like um and uh i went back and fortunately they offered me a job i went from making uh i think i was making uh 
six fifty an hour at Watkins Glen Golf Club, and they paid me six and a quarter to come to Augusta. So took a pay cut. Yeah, yeah, it was good. But, <laughs> but it, was, it was year round, so. Sometimes you got to go down to go up, right? <laughs> That's right. That's right. So, so, so you, you, what, like, you graduate your, this is your first job out of college, and you're at Augusta National, really, you know? And uh, what, what do you do? What, what do they start you doing? I was put in with a guy who, at the time, was a member of a band, and we got in a cart with sand in the back, and it was just prior to, overseeding so we would drive the fairways looking for little depressions take a sod knife and kind of wedge under them lift them up a little bit put some sand under them to try and level them out that was my first day on the job i think my second was pushing sand across the greens for the for the spur or the fall aerification how do you start guys we we saw a new member of your crew first day on the job (laughs) I mean, is it yeah. like do you do you put them somewhere where they, like they can do the least damage? Like, is that uh, yeah. I mean, thinking about putting sand in depressions yeah. is probably you know pretty. That's a good question. We probably don't do it the right way. Uh, we used to a lot of. Th- I mean, they have to know the holes, and that's so you best to just put them with an experienced employee back. You know, back then that's what we did. To some degree, it was more they'll figure it out type of thing. Ten, twelve years ago, maybe a little sooner. But now with the labor market the way it is, if you, it's hard to find people. And when you do, you better retain them. So we put a lot more effort. Our, our guys typically spend the first day on the job with an assistant or with me in a cart and about half the second day before they even step into, you know, jumping on a piece of equipment. They certainly need to be trained on it all. But it's a lot hard. It's a lot more in, a lot more detail into it now just if for no other reason is you you know, the obvious reasons you want them to know what they're doing and want them to be safe. But for more than that, you need them to know that you care and you want them comfort comfortable. So they're not leaving. It's a big shift. I mean, I've been in part of clubs where the labor market was a different time and, and somebody didn't want to stay late to help with the practice. And, and I watch guys terminate employment. Now you're just, you know, you got to navigate all the time. You got to over hire positions. You got to, cause you just, it's it's a tough stretch right here with staff so it's crazy it's a i mean i think it would be a a job that people would like they just don't ever get exposed to it yeah and i've been in it so long and so focused now i don't know that i can answer the questions as to why it's not there you know i don't know what the opportunities are that that don't draw people getting getting back to augusta so you what what's it like you know we we see it in the masters and like from from the grounds crew perspective what's it like the weeks non you know masters weeks like in summer and fall and winter how's it kind of the the vibe of the place change over the seasons well during the the months that it's open which roughly speaking I think it's mid-October to end of mid-May. Um, it's as you would expect any great club to be. I mean, it's trying to keep the maintenance tight and, and consistent playing conditions and, and not interrupting the experience of the members that come there. They, you know, they have a few parties, they call them, or that, uh, that aren't overwhelmingly difficult as far as, you know, big crowds or anything like that. But you're you're really trying to some degree to not be seen there as as you would at any great club. Um, but it's it's pretty pretty standard. Um, 
then you you know you go through the tournament. You start start prep a few months in advance. I I know they've narrowed some of that. I to my knowledge narrowed some of it down the time windows. But you know whether that's uh, scoreboards starting to go up or um, starting to go through bunkers back in our, when I was there. I mean a lot of time spent getting the bunker depths exactly perfect and firm, and then there was a light coating on back. I probably changed some since I was there. Um, so there's there's kind of a, a pocket of people who keep working through things. And then they, they, you know, one of the cool events there, the Jamboree, is a few weeks before the, it's a week before, I think, the the Masters. And the course is always phenomenal for that. And back in my time, we would, you know, record scores and turn them into the scoreboards and members' names and their guests would be up on, or I think it's member members, so their members would be up on the scoreboard. And there's cool stuff like that. And, uh, and then, you know, you go through the Masters and then we try to get it back to playable as quick as you can for the month after it. And we were fortunate enough to have, I assume they still do it, uh, uh, employee appreciation week where we could bring a guest or, and, um, you know, marshals, different people had opportunities to play that week and then it shuts down. Well, we would cover the bunkers in black plastic to keep them clean of debris. So they'd go through and cover them all for all summer. Um, some back then there was still some native soil greens and maybe tent those greens and everything at that point shifted to growing a strong Bermuda base to get ready for the next overseeding and keeping the greens alive throughout the summer. And it was, uh, you know, a lot of sodding for a while. I spent a lot of time on the end of a hose and managing the greens management group um, for Brad and, and Marsh. So they're 95, 96, 97, 98? Yep. So you, you got to see some, you got Crenshaw, you got uh, Faldo, you got Tiger. Um, Omera, I think. Omera, yeah. What, what? Kind of any cool moments from yeah. from the tournament? Yeah, I mean a lot. Uh, you know, they're always surreal in the in what where you're sitting with them. You know, I tell the story. So, what was the first Faldo? Was the first Faldo? Crenshaw. So Crenshaw was first. Yeah. So '95, and I, I kind of told the story that I, for whatever reason I liked learning how to. They had a really good guy who changed cups there at the time. I John Anderson, and he taught me how to change cups, and I enjoyed doing it. And then in the evenings. So we didn't have to mess with it in the morning. I would go change the cups on the putting green. And I think it was the Wednesday night. I'm, I'm up there changing cups late, and they're, the only two people putting on the green are Tom Kite and Ben Crenshaw. And it occurred to me, oh, man, they just came back from Mr. Pennock's funeral. And they're in suits, and I kind of walk up and said, hey, Mr. Crenshaw, I'm sorry to hear about Mr. Pennock. And he's over the putt and never met him before in my life, never spoke to him, probably – wouldn't have been surprised if he looked at me and said, you really think I want to hear about this right now? You know what I mean? Um, you know, he pops right up and just as everybody who has ever met him knows probably nicest man in the planet. That is so nice of you to say, I really appreciate that. Shakes my hand. And you know, he's sure, sure a great man. And, and this is after he's probably been doing that all day long. Right. And, and it just, it sat with me and, and obviously anybody who's met him has similar experiences. And to this day, I met him years later at LA country club and he's funny how he always introduces himself, you know, Hey, Ben Crenshaw. And you're like, yeah, no kidding. You know, <laughs> it's like tiger, you know, tiger gives you his name. Yeah, really? <laughs> Thanks for letting me know. But, uh, it was pretty cool. And, and then, you know, you go on to the next year and it's similar deal. You're 
Greg Norman sitting there with a six stroke lead and on the putting green and, and I'm changing the cup. I'm on the last one and it's, the greens are really dry and firm and they're hard to cut the cups and I'm taking a break over the cup cutter and he's walking towards me. I can see him out of the corner of my eye and, and I'm trying to wait till he either goes by or does something else. So he doesn't watch me struggle to cut this cup and, and he knows I'm waiting. So he stands there and he says, no, no, I want to, I want to see you cut this thing. And, and uh, I said, oh, these would be no problem. And I, everything I had in my power to get it kicked down in about two kicks, pulled it out and said, yeah, I told you they're easy. And he just laughed and walked away. And, you know, I wished him luck. And, and that one was interesting in a lot of ways. I mean, like anybody, I, I, I happened to be standing left to 10 green when he came off 10 that, that Sunday. And, you know, that iconic image of him walking by and the stare in his eyes. I mean, I was right there and saw that and, and then followed that group and stood up behind 11 and the galleries and the just, awful feeling that was around that facility that day was unbelievable I mean you're just like oh my gosh this this is really bad and it's compelling moments and then and then to turn it right back around and and I think was 96 Tigers first I think it might have been amateur yeah, or was it 95 played, well he played all those years because he was uh um, yeah, he was an amateur amateur yeah. he was winning the USAM because he yeah. won yeah so he he was in there so Tigers first year there as an amateur would have been 94, I think. Yeah, okay. Well, maybe I didn't see his first year there, but he come down to fairway one year, and just I'm watering dryers off in the edge of the fairways and, you know, a big smile on his face, yelling, put some water on the greens, please. You know, I mean, little things like that were with, with guys who were forever, you know, I mean, uh, shaking hands with Arnie. and His, his and first year was 95. It probably, it seems like it was. Yeah. And yeah, he's coming down 10. I, I, it's it's weird to me that you know that's early in my career right there 95 and then 13 years later or whatever he's winning a pga here at 07 and and i'm fortunate enough to be here and um anyway i mean just cool things and you go on to the next year and and there's tiger and that image of him pumping his fist up on 18 and i'm standing down in the lower range waiting to open up an irrigation valve so we can start watering behind play because we'd always isolate down the system and so you didn't have a geyser or something. And and I watched a lot of, you know, following that stuff over the years. Just really cool. We got we got a myth, a myth, uh, bust a myth. Okay. Yeah, we're gonna move we're gonna move to something you just talked about. But we got we are these are these plants frozen? Is this is this On a real thing? Azaleas? No, yeah. no, they're not frozen. <laughs> Pipe birds aren't come, brought into pipe and chirping. Well, they certainly weren't when I was there. Um, you know, I don't know what's going on now. I, if it is, it is. I really don't know. But uh, there was if never it, any ice on them. I would, I the the azaleas is a pretty simple concept. They actually did some great planning and and I, I said planning, not planting, and they did both, but. But it's multiple varieties of azaleas that bloom at a little different stages, and it gives the longest extent of bloom. I mean, some years you're going to get all of them. Some years you're going to get the early end. Some years you get the late. Some you might not get any. But, but no, they, I, I don't. I don't think they were ever iced while I was there. So, <laughs> you know, people come up when they don't know exactly what's yeah, going yeah. on. That's one of the best conspiracies. Oh, uh, it's exhausting. Theories. It's exhausting to listen to. And my 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 favorite is that uh, you know. Everybody in the planet planet is just confident that no matter how much rain you can get, that sub airs, these greens are going to be firm as a rock the next morning. And they're just like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, 
it just doesn't happen that way. You're not but, on Twitter, but <laughs> yeah. you know, this year when it was raining, I turned to my buddy that I was down in Augusta with. Uh, so it started raining. I go, oh man, this, we're just going to get like a hundred sub air tweets right now. And like, sure enough, just, oh, time to crank up the sub. It's like, it, it just rained like three inches. All right. I'm going to tell you the story. I probably shouldn't. I'm going to get in trouble for this. So when I was working at LA, I got to know uh, Fred Couples through a member out there, John McClure. And and Fred was a member at LA and big supporter of mine. You know, his comments made my life easy because he comes with a ton of credibility out there. And uh, so when Fred was captain in the President's Cup at Muirfield, Paul B. Latchaw was a superintendent at Muirfield and I was a big friend of Paul's and would go out and help him for years at Muirfield. So I came out for the President's Cup. So it had been wet and raining and and it was sticky and and it was early in the week. So Freddie really wanted those greens fast and just as fast as you could get them because he thought the international guys were going to hit it above the hole and and they'd be you know in trouble and we and American guys weren't going to hit it above the hole. So. During the practice, he would, I'd see him and he'd, he'd keep asking me. And, and, and the greens were plenty fast enough, right? He was just needle and he was shooting for more. And he knew I would go say something to Paul. So he was needle on me. And uh, so there was a couple members of the club around that were friends of his. And I took him on the cart and we were watching a practice round. And Fred, he's, you know, as you, if you can tell, he is kind of what you see, right? I mean, he's that, that guy. He's clowning around and needling people all the time. And, and he ultimately ropes me into coming out onto the green on the seventh green. You know, I'm like, no, I'm good. I'm fine. I'll stay here. He's not, come on, you're scared. I'm not scared, but let's go. So he walks me up seven green and introduces me to Matt Kuchar and introduces me to a couple other guys, Joey LaCava and Davis Lover out there. And he's needling me all along the way. I can tell, right? He's behind me. And so he introduces me to Tiger. And every one of them, he's asking, are these greens fast? And he's behind me, you know, giving a tell him no, tell him no. So he says, Tiger, meet Russ Myers. I said, hey, Tiger, nice to meet you. I said, actually, I was a superintendent in 07 Southern Hills. And Freddie says, Tiger, are these greens fast? He said, yeah, they're pretty quick. He says, how come they're so soft? I said, well, Tiger, it's been like 98% humidity, and it, you know, it rained the last couple of days. I said, they'll get there. He goes, don't they have sub air? I go, well, it's a little bit of a myth there, Tiger. I said, it doesn't really dry out the green. It gets rid of the excess moisture, and, you know, it's not going to do it that quick. does at my house. I said, hey, Tiger, you can teach me how to run that putter right there, but don't teach me how to grow grass, all right? Now, Freddie's loving it. He's lost his mind. You know, he's yelling, and the putter's up near. Tiger loved it. You know, they were all needle, and they just they don't want to meet some guy and then go through that. So he, they were having a ball with the, the needle and then tiger starts giving it back to me about needing lead tape on his putter. Cause the greens are too slow. So <laughs> it was good stuff. That's uh, you know, tiger, just, you're just one of tiger's guys. No, nah, no, I, I think, he, you know, he, best he, I've ever seen. I respect him to death. He but. infamously adds like a <laughs> S Y to, to everybody's, to everybody's name. He like, he calls Brooks cup up Brooksy. Steve Sands, Sansy. Yeah. You're just going to have to reverse it with me and yeah. go rusty. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> he needs to put a T. So yeah, that's the, right. Yeah. Yeah. Rusty wouldn't work. <laughs> no, not. that wouldn't be good. Although he did say that our greens were uh, 
a little bumpy the day he lipped out to shoot 63. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, speak, let's uh, talk about, so you got, got the job at Southern Hills in uh, 06. A year later, you're, you're hosting the PGA. Um, what was it like doing all these major championships, not, you know, being a guy out there helping out to then becoming, you know, the guy? It was comforting. I, I think what I learned through watching everybody was there's a, there's a mentality that the more you do must be better, and I'm not sure that's always the case. You know, I mean, if if you're not, I don't know, you know, pick your deal. If you're not hand-picking uh, twigs off the side of trees, then you must not be doing it right, and, and I think that's not it. I think for me it was about focusing on what mattered inside the ropes. I never dealt with one issue that I can recall outside the ropes. I had great staff here that I had inherited, superintendent before me, a very successful John Zelensky now at Charlotte Country Club, and left me with great guys. And, and I never had to mess with any of that stuff, and it allowed me to just stay focused in here with them. And uh, so I think, you know, I watched – Wow, we got two cuts in today. Let's try to get three tomorrow. And, and that just—I'm not saying it was wrong at other places. Just for us, it didn't make sense. I, I wanted to—I wanted to present the place well. I didn't want it to get worse as the week went on. We backed off. We—I don't know when the last time there was just a single cut done the day of a tournament and no nighttime cut. I mean, we did that that week just because it was just going to continue to wear collars for no added benefit. We were going to achieve the speeds we wanted and the firmness we could get, considering the heat that week. And we ended up with a great, you know, Tiger winning and and a great event and, you know, some of the probably most challenging. The weirdest thing about that week was nobody practiced. I mean, you know, these guys, they'll sit on the tee all day long and just beat away. It was so hot they didn't want to be out there. Yeah, that's. I mean, it's got to be the toughest thing with Oklahoma in, in, in June, July. I mean, we are out here today in July. <laughs> it's just hot. Yeah, it's pretty warm. <laughs> and uh, But that's that's why you got your new heating and air conditioning <laughs> unit, right? That is correct. It's pretty fancy. It is correct. I, I was exposed to that at Augusta in the 90s. They actually put it in in the mid-80s the first time on number 12. And... Uh, I have been a huge proponent of that my whole career. It's something you got to rebuild the greens to put them in. Um, and when I was here for my first stint, I vowed to myself I would never rebuild the green without putting them in because I just think it has such a strong long-term value to extending the life of greens and, and overall ability to manipulate the environment. And uh, so we put in the infrastructure for it on both courses at LA and um, this is the best system put in by far design wise and, and fully operational on all the bent grass surfaces on the course and when uh, I took yesterday here near 4th of July weekend I took yesterday to go up to the lake with my family it was probably 96 degrees outside and and pretty hot and felt pretty darn comfortable we weren't going to deal with any stress no this will be the first summer of it for all in, and we got to see where we're at. But it sure was nice to know that it was about 75 degrees in the soil temps down there. So your career, you went from Augusta. You then became superintendent down in Florida. You were in Key Largo. And, uh, and then you came here to Southern Hills, and, and then you went to L.A. 
Um, so with LA, you went there and they did their massive uh, restoration with uh, with Gil. Um, and then you came back here and Gil, sure enough, came back he- here and did this restoration. You, went, you came back and he did this restoration. So how... how how would you say your views of Southern Hills changed after working at LACC? Yeah, not just Southern Hills, but I, I'm not sure I understood. I understood pure risk reward architecture to a degree, like location of hazards relative to how you would play into a green. Like a good example is number one at Augusta. I always understood that the more you challenge the fairway bunker, the better you're angle would be into the green and that was about the extent of my architectural knowledge and you know some would argue it's probably not much beyond that now including jim wagner but uh, um i i don't know that when i looked at the property before i ever looked at it like that when i looked at a tee box and i looked where to put tee markers i was more worried about divot pattern or, or where than i probably was how the hole played um when we looked at planning a landscaping at the entrance of the club I probably thought of it more about that individual box than how it related to the entire property and the theme of the property and what the time I spent with with Gil and Jim and Jeff Shackelford out at LA just that constant reminders and there was a lot of stuff I didn't know what they wanted to look like the native grasses. I didn't know quite what the look was. I didn't know how dry they wanted the roughs. And, and we would keep communicating after the work was done with photos and Jeff would come out a lot and, and, uh, and say, is this the look, you know, and I kind of started to learn all through that. So now when I come back, I look at Southern Hills totally different. I look at it as the, I mean, when I was here the first time we had a, a PGA the first year, we went through the ice storm that winter, that following winter, and then we had a U.S. amateur. There wasn't a lot of time to really digest that stuff anyway. But I wouldn't have known what to look for. And I wasn't as tuned into how whole location relation to team markers and things like that. And and all that came from five, you know, five, six years in L.A. working with those guys. And it, it really rejuvenated me. I mean, I, I from the start didn't know if I was ever going to want to be a superintendent i've managed to like it and at times contemplated doing other things and and fortunately for me every time i've contemplated something else there's been a new interesting challenge that's kind of said no i think i want to try that and you know leaving here was hard i had a it's a great club great members great managers i liked who i worked for part of leaving was a little bit of fear i mean i was pretty young then and i'm sitting there going what is this is not an easy place to go through summers on that bent grass. And, it, you know, you start looking at your long term and say, is there a likelihood you're going to go 20, 25 years here and retire when you're going to have some problems? I mean, I don't care how good you are. This is a tough place to grow grass in the summer on bent grass. Some of it was, geez, maybe I should look at this. But some of it was the opportunity to move away from the style of, southern hills and the style of augusta national that's clean wall to wall and experience this more rugged you know loose feel to things and so when the opportunity came it just felt like it made sense i I tell everybody i I left southern hills for la country club because i was leaving for a better job but at the time i left la country club to come back here i felt the same way i felt like southern hills was a better job at that point 
And, and part of it was the opportunities I saw that could be there for that property. And didn't know if we would do a major renovation work or anything like that, a restoration, but, but I, I had learned so much that I was like, geez, that stuff would really, that type of thinking would really fit there and would advance that, that place. It's interesting to think too, like, you know, it seems like early in your career, it was, it was really, you know, competitive golf championship golf focused. And, you know, you had some, you have so much experience in that, but then like all of a sudden this opportunity at LA was like, you know, you go to LA and you can be part of a a massive restoration project, which was probably new and fresh and and re-energizing. It was, I mean, I, I did, we, we redid the course I was in Florida card sound golf club. We redid that. Brian Silva did it and very flat piece of land, solid rock. And Brian did a really good job there. I mean, really underrated in a lot of the work he's done in my opinion. But I mean, for that property, he, he did a great job and I didn't know anything about architecture. It, to me, it was all about, have we gotten all the ball marks fixed? Have we got every last blade of grass? You know, has every bunker look perfect? And as you as you evolved, you started to look at it differently. And, and L.A. was like the perfect imperfection, right? How could you make it look as unperfect as possible and still maintain exceptional playability? And that became fun. I mean, when I say we watered, we watered the roughs at L.A. Country Club the last couple of years I was there like one day a month. I mean, that was it. I mean, we pounded them for like an hour ahead for one day, soaked them, and then just let them dry down. And, you know, that type of stuff was fun. And and it took some time. I mean, I, I've nobody pays attention to what I say most of the time anyway, so they won't remember it. But when we opened up the North Course, people were raving about it, right? And it was hard to take a compliment from my perspective because the conditioning wasn't good. But the architecture carried the day for like two years there to where we finally caught up with the conditioning. And to some degree, that's what's happening here. There's a lot of smoke and mirrors and a lot of imperfections right now that are masked by Bermuda that's actively growing. But we got a lot of little things to to tie together, whether it's, you know, edges of greens that still need to be top dressed smooth or a ditch line that's settled and, you know, goofy stuff like that. But I don't, I don't panic about that stuff like I might have 10 years ago because it has no bearing on what's great about the playability. I just want to keep the playability as good as I can. So it, I guess one of the things I think is interesting with, with your career is that you went from, you know, Augusta, Florida, Tulsa. Then you go to like 365 days a year. No, no break. <laughs> Yeah. How how tough was that transition, you know, in L.A., never having downtime? That's something I thought about when I was out in L.A. this year. It was it was tougher than I ever would have imagined it would have been for a couple of reasons. I don't mind working. I don't mind being at work every day, especially if I like the place and, and it feels like home. There's a couple of things that go into that. First of all, it was a 36-hole facility. So even when we were closed, we weren't closed. Like if one course was closed, the other was open. The a huge part of that restoration out there was course setup, a huge part, and it's the hardest thing to train other staff members on the mentality of how each hole can set up differently, and how if you do one thing here, you probably want to do this somewhere else to counter it. 
And, and something as simple as a bad T marker setup can mess that up. And it became very hard to get away from it for me because every day there's something going on, right? The, the ladies are doing this or the seniors are playing here and you had these setup issues and I needed to make sure, at least put my eyes on it to make sure the setup was right. Otherwise it was like, well, that's weird. Why are you playing that front right pin on the third green so long? You know what I mean? And, and so it was hard to get away from the place. And the second thing that added to that dynamic was we had both my wife and I, Lindsay had both our kids while we were out there and I would walk out of that house every morning to two closed doors and get lucky if I get home at six thirty, quarter or seven, maybe play with them for an hour before they went to bed. That got to be where it really wore on me. Um, I didn't want to live my life that way with my kids and, and I had to figure out how to solve that and it was getting hard to do. I would have figured it out, but it ended up, luckily I didn't have to. Yeah. Young kids for superintendent, the hours just are, are tough, especially, you know, they're in, they go to sleep at seven, say, and and then you're, you know, you're never, you're you're done. Yeah. Um, I've, I've gotten much better at vowing not to be that one who's every minute, every day. I, I won't let this industry, I had this conversation with Nick Sidorkas when I came back here. I said, I, Nick, I won't let this take me away from my kids to a point where I'm not comfortable. I said, if it does, I'm just going to have to try to do something else. And, and, and I'm committed to that. So far, I think I've done a pretty good job. This winter has been a little bit more because of the project, but but even it wasn't bad. We had a great contractor, did a heck of a job, and um, Augustine Sanchez with Heritage Links and and obviously Foremost Irrigation. And with, you know, Seamus Maley was on site every day. So, you know, I would, I need, I, I say it a lot that I'm going to the lake. I tell people that all the time. And I go sometimes. I don't probably go as much as I tell people I do. But but in some ways, I got to, if, if I don't enjoy the time with my kids, I'm going to hate being here. And I won't last. So you gotta let me do it. At some point, my kids go, probably won't want me around. Going to the lake is a is a mental expression. Uh, yes, for you, yes, you know? I'm going to the lake. <laughs> <laughs> my wife won't let me go to the bars often anymore. So now it's the lake. <laughs> um, so so how is so you come back and you you want to you've seen what LACC became and you you come back and you see you got kind of a new perspective on Southern Hills and talk us. So then you, you start to work with Gil and how did this project come about? Okay. So before I had, so I, I had accepted the opportunity to come back, but hadn't been back yet. I, we were starting the South course project at LA and you know, Southern Hills knew up front that I wouldn't be able to come back right away and was understanding of that. And I was there. So so there was this time period in between. And during that time period, Keith Foster had stepped away from a, like a 19-year relationship with the Southern Hills. Um, I was called by Nick Sidorkas and asked me to prepare some thoughts for the executive committee on the various architects in the industry. And I said, okay, I'll do, you know, I'll compile what I can, what I know. And I had a conference call with the executive committee to kind of go over some thoughts. Um didn't you know lead them any one way just told them how each stylistically either you know what what you know of them and and they asked 
at the time if I would have a conversation with with Gil to see if he would have any interest in guiding them through a short game construction and driving range because they were going to build this teaching center or golf performance center. I said I'd do it. I did. Gil said he would do that probably somewhat reluctantly at the time. Obviously, he's extremely busy, and to come out and build a short game facility in the corner of a property on a flat piece of land and you know oversee a driving range was probably not something he was totally excited about, but he also knew there was possibilities in the future, and, and you know our relationship certainly probably didn't help or didn't hurt. Um, Wagner might say. Well, yeah, help. Wagner. Wagner. <laughs> <laughs> got to take it easy he'll, he'll needle me forever if i say something wrong um <laughs> so we I've, it's just funny because i've got this image of jim wagner from almost any project where he's on the excavator and as i pull up he turns the excavator sideways and so he can face you right and he always puts his elbows on his knees and then puts his head in his hands and invariably says you know what the is that guy doing over there? <laughs> Back then, that's how he'd do it. Now he texts you nonstop. He texts about everything he sees. I mean, it's hilarious. When he's here. It's hard to believe he, he can run the controls on an excavator and text. I think he must be doing it with his, with his chin or something because he's just like, there's a guy behind three, this dumb SOB, you know, and it's in the text. And you're like, how is he getting anything done? He's texting nonstop. But it's, and that's without even getting into the 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 political back and forth that we have but he he is a piece of work and i've lost my train of thought on where we were we're, we're <laughs> talking with uh with gil so he, he agrees okay, to do the so short course uh the the driving yeah. range short game area so the the board or the executive committee and the board met with gil and they were great excited that he would be willing to come work with us Asked him, he agreed to do that stuff. And then the board actually delayed that work by one year. And in the meantime, we kind of took that opportunity to say, hey, if we're going to delay this year, why don't we get him out here? Let's let him go through and look at the whole property and kind of give us overall thoughts of it. They thought that was great. Gil found time to do it. And uh, and it resulted in the, you know, the master plan or whatever you want to call it of the, of the, of the work with no, you know, no recommendation of anything. It just said, these are the things I think you should look at and do. This board, I've said it before, in its wisdom, um, it was in the middle of some facility planning stuff as far as tennis, uh, what we called the cart barn being rebuilt, and uh, the men's locker room, not to mention the teaching center. And they they didn't want to affect the membership more than once. So they piled this whole thing into one project, which turned out, you know, ultimately to be this, you know, our end of it ended up being ten and a half million for everything. And that, you know, that includes a million and a half in hydronics. And so, you know, I'll defend Gil a little bit. Sometimes they get thrown in that the numbers of their projects are getting inflated. Certainly wasn't here. I mean, we were, golf course alone, we were probably uh, under nine million for that work so and that was all new greens all new greens bunkers tees creek restorations tree removal fairway expansion all that stuff what what would you say was the thing that you didn't expect that's turned out like that you didn't foresee that 
you know, in a good way or, you know, in a bad way. I mean, I don't think it will be a bad way, but That's a good question. I mean, I, I probably came into it with such high expectations because I just knew how, I mean, I knew how good those guys were and I knew what, because having gone through it, I was always pretty confident people were going to love it. I just could never get a sense that the membership fully understood where we were going with it. Um, there were times I was, I got a little concerned that because they trusted so much of it to the board and to Nick and Carrie and myself and obviously probably that trust came because of Gil and Jim but but they trusted so much of it was that they didn't they weren't standing there every step of the way and it was one of these deals where I felt like we were going to do the big reveal and they were like going to be like well why did we do that but it wasn't and so I had analyzed so much of two and and the split fairway there and uh, 10 and adding the creek and that I, I wasn't surprised by those things. 17, I knew they were going to, I felt very confident those were going to be great. Probably the one that I didn't know coming into it. And I've never been quite able to figure that hole out that I think is so great. Now is probably going to end up being 11. I just think that it was kind of an, to me, it was always kind of a nondescript hole there in the corner with bunkers wrapped around it. And you just had to hit the green and boom. And now you got to hit it, but there's a lot of dynamics there with, with the creek down to the left being put back in. I just don't think that's that. I think that it reminds me a lot of the British holes there, the Scottish holes and the postage stamps now. It's, it's funny. I, I When I watch Southern Hills when in 07 and 03 or 04 or 01, 01, um, I uh, like just, you know, was, there was nothing – you know, memorable. And then you look at a topo, uh, you look at a Google earth image and there's nothing, then you get out here and it's just like, it's unbelievable the land and everything. But the par threes are really fascinating. I think because they're all in corners of the property Hmm. and they all, they're all connector holes kind of that connect you to the next great par four from one great par four to the next great hole. Like, you know, 11 is a perfect example. It's on this terrain that's, it's too severe to put a par four or par five with the way that bank comes down. But then, you know, it's connect, it connects 10 and 12, like two of the most iconic holes on the golf course now. Yeah. And it's just, it's, it's, it's such a fascinating, and 11's just, it's a really cool hole. And it, I, I, you know, it's, you've got that prevailing wind and that ridge line almost like blocks the wind. And I think you're going to see so many guys just miss it right there because yeah. now with the, that left side where it's shaved down and runs right into the creek it's yeah. like you're so scared of that you can't and you think this wind's going to push it over there and it just doesn't do anything to it yeah and the funny thing is if you've played the hole before you don't think right front or right is that bad but it is now i mean i'd rather be hitting from the tee than hitting from the right of the green because you know the green's half as deep from the right side and you're aiming towards that creek so I just I think that became a really special change. And by the way, it made 12T look immensely better. 12T was just kind of down there, flat, and didn't really you know it stood up in the middle of this open area. It just was weird. And now it gives that area body and character. But I, I didn't really mention it or think about it at the time. But the thing that came out better, and it's it's not as you know I had high expectations for the golf course stuff, but that area up around the first tee came out 
every bit as good and better than I could ever picture of it. Uh, the vistas up there now are has always been incredible off of one tee, but you just don't feel enclosed in up there anymore. And it feels like there's an atmosphere and a, and a vibe and a, and a, and an area to hang out and communicate and with the small putting green in there. And that, that whole thing's changed a lot. Yeah, to me, it just, the place has such character now and like, it's, it's got that, that intimacy that you see with all the greens close together in different spots. And there's just, you know, you go to points on the golf course and everywhere you go, you can see multiple holes and multiple shots from yeah. if you're, if you're spectating, it's, it's just such a neat spot. Yeah. Uh-huh. It's funny. I walk on golf courses now and I look at them and I think probably I'm, you know, I, my exposure to working with Gil and Jim and, and Jeff over the years, I think I look at it and I go, I would do this or I would do that, but it's not really, I would do this. It's like, I think they would do this, that, or this. Uh-huh. And and I find myself doing that when I go play golf courses. It's like, yeah, I think this needs to be more like this. And uh, and I think that's so much of that rejuvenation for me. I mean, it's, I mean, it just that that relationship really got me fired up. I look at this property now, and I don't do that as much now that it's done. Right, I don't see anything that that I'm itching to modify, and and. I know uh, LA North we finished and, and we spent the next four years doing more stuff. It was all under Gill's, you know, advice, but it was just a function of how much was done in the original main body of the project and what was continued later. Yeah. So, so there was one day, were there any other differences in the projects like in, in running it, like any noticeable different, like, well, no, I don't, I don't know if there was. I think uh I think most of the north course was all like Jim Gill and, and uh Jeff and and they kind of clearly had these functional roles that they were playing as far as construction, but there was the collaborative side they were communicating a lot. Um here that was more Jim and Seamus and and Gill. So I think maybe that's the only real dynamic difference. Um, the time that Jim may have spent on the excavator at LA Country Club was probably replaced by Seamus doing it here and taking that lead role as far as the the actual day to day operation. And then when Jim would come in and out, he would you know fill in and I mean not fill in, he would take charge for a few days and then hand it back to Seamus and. It was kind of more that way. Fill in. Yeah, yeah. Fill in is not really something Jim does. So he was like a, he was like a, a good bench player. <laughs> yeah, no, six no. six yeah. man. Like Rage and Rondo. <laughs> <laughs> no, LeBron, that's my ball. Yeah. <laughs> Rondo, uh, Rondo had a moment against LeBron <laughs> in that running out of Boston. That's right. That's right. <laughs> I mean, that's right. He for a for a hot second was the LeBron stopper. <laughs> that was when LeBron was having some issues. You know, like he there was that was everybody was like, you know, can LeBron actually win this? Rajon Rondo was shutting him down a six six one point guard. I still I was thinking trying to think back. I don't think LeBron's ever been called for a charge in his life. I don't think he's ever committed one. Talking about oh, body yeah. control. His reactions, being a Bulls fan and being a Bulls season ticket holder when, when the Heat and him were, you know, 
and it, just the, his reactions anytime he gets called for a foul, it's like <laughs> he's just like. <laughs> yeah. We get off on basketball for yeah. an hour. I know it'll, it'll be the the next podcast. will be all about you know <laughs> the free right. agency boom that's uh, happening right now. Right. Um, so uh, it, with uh, with Southern Hills of the future, you you guys are now like probably twenty thirty. You're TBD. Yeah, I mean, to my understanding, that's that's the committed date with still some outside possibility of it moving up. Um, don't don't know where it stands officially. Yeah. It'll be exciting. I, I you know I walked away. I'm like I I can't wait till then to watch <laughs> to yeah. watch major championship golf on yeah. this course. Yeah. Well, I I'm with you. They gotta get the again that there's that drive there. They gotta get some ratings. Yeah. So you you're um one of the biggest and, and you alluded to this earlier. One of the biggest issues in the turf industry is the, is the labor. How have you gone about tackling finding labor and, you know, and wages and all of that? Yeah. The, so finding labor on the base staff level is still the same basic tactics as far for our full-time staff. We're still trying to find, you know, local people looking for long-term employment, good, good place to work, good benefits. Um, it's this in our environment. It's the seasonal that that had dried up a lot. There just wasn't any there. So you know, we had Scott Bordner, a friend of mine at Chicago Golf Club, had mentioned to me a couple of years ago that he was having good luck with high school kids, and and we were left with no choice but to try some things like that, and and reached out to the local schools and guidance counselors, and and just got inundated with unbelievable amount of requests for employment. Um, and it's been great. I mean, we we overhire them just because we kind of take the approach of we're going to try to get you to go Tuesday through Sunday, six thirty in the morning till whatever eleven o'clock, eleven thirty. If they want to work a bunch more, great. But you can still be a high school kid. You can have your summers. You can do whatever. We'll overhire the number of them. So if they want a day off here or there, we're not going to fight with them about it. You know, hey, go for it. We got plenty of guys. And financially, that's made sense. And they've been much better than most of the planet thinks they would be. You know, I mean, they get, the get-off-my-lawn world of these these new kids these days, they don't know how to work, it hasn't shown to be true to me. They, they've been very reliable. They've been at high energy. They bring a pulse to this operation that we were probably missing. So that's been a big part. Now, it leaves us a little exposed right when they go back to school for, a, you know, a month and, and right before they come for a month. And we've got to still try to figure that out. Um, it's tough. I mean, you drop 28, 30 guys, and you're still growing, and you got to mow for about a month. That can be tough until the grass shuts down enough that we're not we're not pushed. Any college kids? Probably uh, out of that 30, probably 15% of them are college kids, but some of them are ones that worked for us in high school that are coming back and doing it in college. Is that, I mean, that seems like a smart way to do it. That's how you got into it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's there are, there are a lot of them that would be very good at this and be better at it than I was. It's it's a fascinating thing. Yeah. I I think about it. I I grew up caddying, you know, but I was yeah. I also worked the bag room at at the country club that I caddied at, and I, I mean I was out there at like five thirty opening up the bag room and it, you know setting up the range and everything and it you know in many ways I would work with the superintendent getting the range stuff done, but like you know like. That was a great job. I spent all day outside. 
Well, look at this. I mean, this place right now is, think about this. So right now I've got on our staff roughly 30 high school kids or freshman, sophomore in college. We've got, I'm going to guess, another 30 working at the pool. And then with this club has it set up where the caddy program that Kerry has been building up here and developing through the freshman caddies, he trained some 200 kids or caddies and a lot of them high school kids. So there's somewhere in the neighborhood of 260 local high school kids coming out here four days a week, whatever they are, right? And they're being exposed to leaders in the community and working with them and walking with them, and they're they're embracing that. That stuff is what clubs were about when you started caddying and when, you know, people were coming up my age. Um, it's it's a pretty cool thing if we can sustain and if, if it builds the way you want. I mean, the number of people you talk to that are members of this club that got their start to the game of golf through caddying is huge. So whether it's golf course maintenance or caddying, whatever they like to do, it can't hurt the game to get them going, and that's a lot of kids. I mean, that's that's uh, just under half the number of members we got that are working here that are all, you know, still in their educational formative years. That, the caddy program, how much has that helped with uh, reducing, say, cart, cart play and the traffic just on the golf course? It's had a – well, the first year of it was – a minor impact had a very small impact um it's a big culture change here at the club that to be quite honest i don't know how far it's going to go um it's we opened the course back up with walking only and it's been an unbelievable vibe and feel out here it just feels like the best of the best i mean you know forget golf course you know golf digest rankings but if you look at them the last time i looked at them I was trying to make a case to the club about walking and, and I, I asked them to stop me when they got to the course on the list that did more or the same amount of cart rounds as we were doing. And it was below us. I mean, the top 30, I mean, you know, maybe Pebble, but Pebble's doing it on cart paths only. So I guess to Southern Hills's credit, we were, you know, the highest ranked of, the courses that are allowing a high amount of golf carts. So when, when we first institute carry first kind of built the program, it had a little bit of an impact, had about a 7% impact, but that wasn't going to really move the needle. And, and so now coming out of this, we're walking only for the first month. We're about to shift to a cap of 36 carts a day, which is going to sound like a lot to some clubs, not like not many to others. It's a hundred degrees. Yeah. And it is hot. And, and, uh, but that's 72 golfers, and, and we've we've been doing pretty good numbers in the walking-only stage. So we think there's a, a, a better-than-average chance that that 36 will accommodate all we need. There may be some days where it doesn't, but we're hopeful that that'll work well and it'll be embraced by the membership. But but at some point uh, in August, we're, we're to shift to where our t- we have six tee times an hour. Two of them are going to be reserved for walking-only, which in and of itself is a big shift from where we were. I mean, that's 33%, and we were doing 93% cart rounds. Mm-hmm. So we'll see. We're, we're working at it. The, the, it's being – the people walking are embracing it like crazy. Got push carts for the first time in, I don't know what, 50 years. Yeah, it's, so. it's interesting. And then from your standpoint, it makes your life a lot easier just from the agronomics with 
In a the ton stress. of different ways. In a ton of ways. People don't, I mean, it's hard to even quantify it, but it's, it's almost impossible. When you're a packed T-sheet with carts out there, it's almost impossible to mow rough productively because they're they're zinging in and around and you're trying not to disturb their experience and they're just moving left to right so quick you don't even know where they're going so there's no predictability to it so your efficiency drops and you have to mow and we have we mow rough on mondays now when we're closed instead of doing productive maintenance oriented work like venting or something to smooth stuff out we're getting rough mode so we don't have to be out there mowing in amongst play it's it's not ideal, but, but it's what we're where we're at now. So, yes, it it helps the health and well being of our members. Yes, it creates an atmosphere that feels more like a classic facility. Yes, it steadies the pace of the, what's going on out there, and it allows us to find openings to work without interfering with golfers. You know, there could be a three-hole gap, and if there's carts zinging around, somebody's just going to jump over there in that gap and start playing, and we're in the middle of trying to, I don't know, fertilize dry, you know, weak areas around a bunker. And then you got our sprinklers are trying to water them in. And so there, there's there's such a huge benefit to getting it, as I'm preaching to the choir, I know, but, but uh, it, it's, a, oh, it's a 360 or 180 here with the walking only. You know, it's just really cool. I imagine, given the uh, temperatures and like the the growing that happens in the summer here, there's a lot more in day maintenance that you have to do than say like a an LA. Would you say that? I don't know. I don't know if that's on greens. There was without the hydronics and what we've seen so far. There's certainly. I mean, we were four guys on the greens all day long. You know, whether that was cooling, syringing. Um, constant inspection and and fans and so i think from the greens on the bermuda i don't i don't know that that's the case i mean the good news about you know i was talking to i was actually talking to uh paul b and phil, phil kafari in the last few weeks and told the story you know they're both about to either doing opening their course from a project or about to do one and and i said it's funny you know we opened the course may something late may may 29th and the good news about our project is when we open, we're the worst we're going to be. We're going to get better each day because we get into more heat and, and that Bermuda's going to grow more and we can do more. With their projects in cool season grasses, they're now had, if they open at that time, the best they're going to be is probably when they open that summer because now you're implementing imperfections and stresses. and so, so there's some advantage to being down here from that standpoint. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it, how crazy. It, do you have anything? Do you have to worry about like ice damage and stuff uh, on the greens and in the winter? Like that's something that happens big in the upper Midwest. Uh, yeah, the ice damage would be more on POA plants. Uh-huh. I think with us, we've we we're not likely to get ice damage on bent grass. That's uh-huh. for sure. And certainly not with the hydronics heating them now. But but uh it's an interesting dynamic, and, and you know, the, some scientists will probably call you and debate this, but, you know, I'm speaking pretty openly about my opinions on stuff, which never gets me anywhere, but <laughs> this whole dynamic of getting sand, sand, sand injected to everything has, has had latent impacts. I mean, I don't know that the ice damage was ever as bad in the, in the Northeast as it is in recent years. And it makes me wonder how much of that is the incorporation of sand into a lot of these native soil 
you know, push up greens. Um, cause obviously it's colder, you know, in the sand and, uh, you know, there's benefits in the, in the summer, but, but you, you now have probably an increase in additional issues like nematodes or, or, uh, or ice damage due to, due to years of trying to incorporate sand into these things. So the, uh, we, you're doing, you're using, um, the robot mowers on the, uh, yeah. the nine hole, uh, yeah. course here. And I'm just curious, uh, you know, if there was one major innovation in the maintenance industry, what would you like to see? That's a pretty big one. The robotics across the board. I mean, we incorporated the Greens Robotics one because it was what was available, um, and it and it's working well for us on our West Nine. We went from it took five people to set up that course on a on a, more, a daily basis. We're now doing that with three, and if you come to the you know, I'm not quite ready on the champ yet for odd reasons, but but the biggest thing that impacts us on the championship course is is kind of twofold, but they both revolve around the same thing. I wish I could eliminate, figure out clippings on fairways without having to use blowers to do it and get the same effectiveness because that noise is a big issue. But for us to mow fairways and deal with clippings, it's a 12-person job. There's eight fairway mowers and four blowers out there that's a lot so if there was a way to get that robotics on large areas like that that would be huge i know there, there's robotics now for range pickers and stuff like that i think it's common it's just, just range picker yeah, robotics yeah it's pretty awesome man that was like my uh my summer past that's pretty summer. awesome yeah you know, no, nobody to eliminated. hit at anymore <laughs> no no <laughs> i'm sure they'll find another another role but uh Whenever I had a hangover, I'd go sleep in the, <laughs> sleep in the back of the range picker. So I'm going to pick the range. <laughs> well, I never, I've never, I've only ran a range picker here. I think it's the only place I've ever run one. It's not fun. <laughs> no, it doesn't look like much fun. <laughs> no. Um, so uh, thanks for coming on. We're we're looking forward to seeing Southern Hills more majors. <laughs> you, you know, hopefully, hopefully sooner than later. Yeah, that would be nice. I gotta gotta do it before I'm not around to do it. I know they got they got to bump it up. <laughs> I don't have that influence. I'll just keep saying it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> All right, thanks for coming on, Russ. Oh, thank you. You've been listening to the Fried Egg Podcast. We do the digging for you. 